0: Okay. Audi on the High Motor Podcast, one week till selection Sunday, maybe less, depending on when you're listening this week. Thanks for listening. Great to have you. It's going to be a fun show today. First, in just a minute or two, it'll be Mary Mack head coach Joe Gallo, who led his team first year at Division I to the conference regular season title, but they are not playing in the conference tournament this weekend. They won't be playing in the NCAA tournament. They won't be playing in the NIT because of that excessively long transition postseason ban by the NCAA. They're not even eligible for the NCAA tournament, for the NIT, for the conference tournament until 2024. So I'm going to have him on the show to talk about that, the frustration, uh, recruiting with that ban and more, and then a high-motor regular Chase Kitty dropping by to shoot the shit again. A couple things we want to touch on with him. All right, thanks for dropping by the High-Motor Podcast. Let's get humming with Joe Gallo, Merrimack head coach. And coach, when I texted you, a few days ago, you know, just to check in and give you the number I'd be calling from for this call. You replied with, looking at it here, one, two, three exclamation points in that first sentence. And then added a fourth one on that second sentence. And I haven't been doing this for that long, but long enough where I've had probably 50 or 60 guests on the show. And I've never I've never had a guest reply with four exclamation points. It seems like you have a little bit of enthusiasm.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, and that's... Uh... You know, uh, we, we've gotten a lot. We've had a great year and, um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, great publicity for the program and, and um, you know, we, we take it all on. So I would never, you know, when you asked if I would do the show, um, you know, I, I just love doing things like this because it's um, how hard my kids have worked and going through the transition that they've had and a lot of, you know, doubts in other people's minds. It's, um, it's exciting to, to share our story with people. So, um, I know through text and email it's hard to uh, show the emotion, so I figure I add a couple exclamation points there to, to let you know how excited I am to be doing this.
0: Yeah, and I really appreciate the time. And before we, I press record here, you said that you know you you got a couple games on the background here. So again, we're talking here on Saturday afternoon, and right now those games as as we really speak here, Northeast Conference Tournament Semi is going on. Uh, that top seed, Robert Moore is here playing, I think, in a little bit. Um, obviously, you're not the top seed. Um, you're not there after winning the regular season title, but still not eligible for the NIT, for the NCAA tournament here for a few more years. And and you obviously knew that that coming into this Division One transition when it was announced two years ago, I mean, this isn't a surprise. You knew going into the season, but there's got to be still at least a little bit of frustration, right?
1: Yeah, you know, um, up until now when you're actually watching the games and you kind of think about, some of the teams you've played and how you match up with them. And uh, obviously we'd love to be playing on a day like today, but uh, we put so much into that regular season knowing that, um, you know, we would not be able to play in the conference tournament. So that was, you know, those last two weeks, that was our conference tournament. You know, we were, uh, you know, up a game or two with a couple to play, I think with six games to go, we were at a two game lead and then it shrunk back to a one game lead with four to go. And, um you know we that was our playoff time you know we at one point we talked to our guys and said we're basically in a double elimination tournament uh to be regular season champs um, And you know we, we lost out at Mount St. Mary's uh and then we came back and won against you know Central Connecticut at home and that that was our championship and we played it like it was and we put a lot of stock into those and uh talked about it so you know I, it does it feel like we're missing out of course a little bit but um you know, we ran. We had such an emotional high from the championship that that we won because that's all we could control. Um, and, and our guys, you know, I think I don't want to speak for the players, but I think they're pretty satisfied with the year that we've had.
0: What is your your understanding of why? I mean, you're not eligible for the postseason unless something changes, which seems unlikely. And I know the Northeast Conference uh, can come in and say that you're eligible for the conference tournament here, really at any point, because NCA isn't controlling that. But what is your your understanding of why this five year postseason ban is in place for transitioning members?
1: You know what? I, I think it's just for um, a lot of things outside of what goes on on the court or on the fields. So, um, you know. It gives you some time because cause you're not fully a member until that transition period is over. So, you know, you need to, uh, you know, budgets need to increase and, you know, coaching staff uh, size needs to increase. Um, so so they give you that time, to, you know, to, to, to meet all those quotas over the four year period. So, you know. Do I think it should be taken out on on the players after a year that we had? Of course not, but I I do understand the rules are the rules, and we knew what we were getting into, so I don't have a whole lot of gripes about it at this point.
0: And then you just touched on that. That was my follow-up question. Do you feel like this is taking opportunities away from the student-athletes? And I know I'll go get to this in a little bit. You still have some opportunity to to possibly play some games here uh, in a week and a half or two weeks here, but generally do you think by not Playing on Saturday afternoon here, is it taking away opportunities from student athletes when they shouldn't be? You know what, I maybe a little bit, but we knew what we were getting into,
1: um, and that's why we 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 switched gears. And you know, we talked about after our Providence game, we we actually we had a big lead early in, in the Providence game, and ended up getting kind of ugly um, the other way. But you know, we, we sat in the locker room and, and talked about this being a non-conference game and everything that that we're doing here is preparing us to be regular season NEC champs. So. Um, I don't, uh, yes, a little bit of, like I said, wish we were playing today, but um, I feel like our our students had a great experience. Um, You know, they're home on spring break for the first time ever. We had a couple of great practices this week, and we had a trophy mailed to us from the league sitting on my desk that says NEC Conference Champion. So uh, there's, there's plenty to celebrate, plenty to be proud of.
0: How much of a challenge is it for you and coaches talk about buy-in so much and whether that's a new coach or a transitioning situation like yours you know what type of challenge is there for a buy-in because a lot of your guys depending on you know red shirts or if something were to happen I I would assume your entire roster will be turned over you know by the time that that your program can can reach the NCAA tournament win a conference tournament title so is there any challenge with buy-in uh, you know does that come up in recruiting, do recruits ask about it, worry about it, or not so much?
1: You know, we're, we're open and honest with everybody. You know, in, in our first conversation with all recruits and families, we we let them know that it's, um, you know, where we stand and with the postseason band. And, you know, we talk about it probably in the first conversation and then in, in one of the last conversations when it comes down to, to decision time. But um, everything in between is just, you know, we're doing what everyone else is doing. We're selling our program, our school, you know, the academics, the – you know, campus life, uh style of play, you know, how we treat our players and the, the student asset experience that they have playing for us. Um And then at the end, when it comes down to it, you know, we kind of bring it back up again and say, okay, what's important to you? Uh, you know, and they say, well, you know, where school is, the academics, you know, how you guys play, how I fit in with the players. And, and then we say, okay, well, if you're going to make a decision uh, based off something that has a small percentage of ch- chance of happening, you know, at the other schools recruiting you anyway, um, you know, what what's the holdup? And we've done a good job. I mean, our freshman class is, you know, I think it's as good as any other class in our league. And the, the recruits we have coming in, we have three really good commits and that I don't think it has affected us a whole lot. And, and now going forward, every class from here on out, we've two chances of, of getting a crack at playing in the NCAA tournament. So, you know, I think we, we weathered that pretty well. And uh we did that just by being open and honest with people. And, you know, I think
0: people have appreciated that. What is, is generally the, the reaction? And when it is brought up again, you, you say that, you know, are you concerned about that small you know piece of the pie being the NCAA tournament? Now, you know, you can't comment on very specific recruits or situations here, but is there ever a situation where, where the kid says, yeah, you know, going to the NCAA tournament is, is a huge priority? And just generally, yeah, what is the reaction there? Are, are there some kids that just say, you know what, no, it, it's a huge deal for me and I really want to do it as much as I want to play for your program. The NCAA tournament means a lot to me.
1: Yeah, you know what? It hasn't happened yet. Um, and I think maybe we've just been for- fortunate. Um, you know, and, and we don't, um, we recruit a little bit differently. We're not one of these programs who goes and offers 85 kids and hopes to say yes. You know, we're, we're pretty particular in the type of player and person that we recruit. So, um, I think we we kind of set that stuff out early. And, you know, I would never hold that against a kid if that's, you know, I, since I was eight years old, I'd sell out it. You know, NCA bracket and I would be in my driveway and I was, you know, I was Sherman Douglas on one side playing against Charles Smith from Georgetown on the other side. And we've all dreamed, you know, it's like we all dream about playing in that NCAA tournament, but, um, it, it hasn't. I, I just think the way we've recruited and the type of kids and families that, that we've recruited, it has not hurt us yet. Knock on wood. Um, and, and you know, if you asked our guys, um, looking back at this year, I mean, we've had, uh, you know, articles on ESPN and articles in the Washington Post and The Athletic. And, you know, we probably got more um, name recognition uh than whatever school other that ends up winning the conference tournament just from the year that we had. So, uh, you know, I, I think for our players, they've had a, a heck of a experience and we hope to keep it that way going forward.
0: Yeah, and even you know, going off of that, I think it was yesterday or maybe on Thursday night. I know that Jeff Goodman he had tweeted the list of, of the Naismith Coach of the Year finalists, the ten coaches. And I don't have the exact tweet in front of me, but he said something to the effect of Joe Gallo got hosed. How would how do you how do you how do you rate your coaching job this season? I mean, are you you obviously were conference regular season champions? Are you pleased with with what you were able to accomplish?
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I think we've um, exceeded expectations and. Yeah, going into the year, um, very uncertain. I, I knew we, we had a really good, you know, we went to three straight division two NCAA tournaments. I knew we'd be competitive and we'd be in a lot of games. Um, and then, you know, we, we lost at Maine by 20 in the first game of the year. And that was, you know, a little bit concerning. And then two days later, we beat Northwestern on the road. Uh, but once we settled in and, you know, the big weekend for us was UMass Lowell had a, a you know, four-team event, and and we lost a tight game to Dartmouth, and we beat UMass Lowell, and we beat Jacksonville. Uh, And as a staff, we talked and said, you know, these are all teams very similar to what we're going to see in conference. And, you know, as long as we continue to get better and stick to our game plan, um, you know, I think we'll have a shot to be in a lot of games. And what we ended up doing is we won all those close games So we went seven and two, and the games decided by five points or less. And You know, if you look around the country, I'm sure there – Teams that were two and seven in those games and it changed their season, to, you know, three and four, whatever it may be, and everything in between. And what we've been able to do is is just win a lot of those close games, and we built confidence within ourselves and our program, and um, you know, it kind of led to more wins going forward.
0: With you know all those unknowns, and you said you probably exceeded expectations this year. You know, I'm not sure if you if you want to even you know tell me honestly here what were the the expectations going into the season. I mean, did you have I'm guessing you didn't have like a win total in mind or anything like that. But what generally, generally, how did you, how did you see this this season going, honestly, before it started?
1: You know, I, I uh, the the goal was within the team to be regular season champs. Um, I, I never, I just don't. It's it's hard to do. You know, we all want to look at our schedule and say that's a win, that's a loss, loss, win, win, loss, and we just didn't get into that. We said, you know what, this is a unique opportunity. It's something that. You know, not a whole lot of people are ever in this situation. Um and we just took it day by day to be perfectly honest with you. And we, we've had um you know, we had a really good player in Jabaris Hayes who uh you know was first team of the league and he would have been player of the year in our division two league that we came from. And you know being that I was at Robert Morris, I spent the season in the NEC as an assistant, I did have somewhat of a gauge of where our guys stacked up against some of the players, you know, that I coached and coached against. So um again, I I thought, you know, a guy like Javaris was as good as just about any guard we coached at Robert Morris or or played against. So I knew we had a kind of ace in the hole there. And then we have a bunch of other guys that just bought in and used to winning and been in a lot of close games. So, um, again, I, I'd be lying if I said, I thought we'd be sitting here with, you know, 20 wins, 14 and four in the league, but, um, I, did know I did have a really competitive group that would be in a lot of games. The way they were able to close them out um, is, is that's compliments to them. Um, but I, you know, going into the year, I never put a win or loss number on, on any
0: season. No. What's the plan here for the for the next week and a half, two weeks? Are there plans to to play in the CBI, CIT? Have those invites come yet? What's going on with that?
1: Yes. Yeah. So we're gonna we're going to play in the uh, in the CIT, um, and that was you know they they were great. They told us weeks ago, you know, once, once it was known that we were going to be above 500, once we hit that 16 win mark, um, you know, they, they told us we were in and gave us a a hard yes that we would be in. So, you know, we, we gave that commitment back to them and, you know, for now we are, you know, I probably would have gave the guys last week off, but this coming week is spring break. So, you know, we had the weekend off after we beat central and we practiced Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And now I gave them, you know, five, six days off. We'll, We'll get back to work next Friday.
0: And now looking even you know farther ahead, still three more years if I'm correct with that. Three more years until you're even eligible for the postseason in that fourth year um, from now. What's the biggest challenge here over the next three or four years, as you talk recruiting, but but other stuff where a lot of these guys that you still have in your roster are never going to you know be eligible for for the NIT for the NCAA tournament for a conference tournament title. What is your your biggest challenge, do you think, over the next few years as you guys do look ahead to when you are eligible?
1: Yeah, there's um. You always worry about that of, of how to motivate these guys, but you know I tell everybody, even you know even as a Division two, we never talked about the NCA tournament until it actually got there. So it's like you know we're not going to not play hard in a game in November because we're not eligible for for an NCA tournament. Um, you know, there's there's plenty of other things as we saw this year to, to play for, and there's um, you know there's there's milestones, there's individual achievement, there's you know plenty of other team stuff that, that we can do and and i'm I think it's on the table right now i'm I'm hoping they cut that four year period down to three and then we're only be two year away. I think the NCA is is talking about that and maybe our story can be a little bit of a, a trailblazer for that uh, but you know like I talked about in, in our, how we recruit, we have a bunch of motivated guys who so they're in the gym constantly. They're never going to, you know, our guys aren't going to not get an extra workout in because they're not eligible for an NCAA tournament. You know, I know it's, again, a big thing, and it's March, and it's what we're all talking about, but I have a group of competitive guys that just want to win every game they play in, so I'm not too worried about that going forward.
0: All right, that's head coach Joe Gallo, Mary Mac College. Hey, coach, uh, congrats again on the conference title. Really appreciate the time today, and, uh, you know, best luck in the tournament here in a couple of weeks.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: Chase A. Kitty back on the High Motor Podcast this week, and before we jump in, a note from our friends at DraftKings to remind you that the grueling NBA regular season is beginning to wind down. Teams are making that playoff push, looking to secure home court advantage in the first round, but you still have a few weeks left to feed your fantasy fix over at DraftKings, the leader in one-day fantasy this is your opportunity to earn big cash prizes with basketball contests every night throughout the rest of the season. And DraftKings is giving you a free shot at $30,000 in total prizes with your first deposit. Drafting your team is simple. Select your players. Stay under the salary cap. And the best part is you get to draft a new team every single day without any Commitment. There is no better time to sign up for DraftKings, so download the DraftKings app now, enter code HIGHMOTOR during sign-up, and get a free shot at over $30,000 in prizes with your first deposit. Don't forget, that's code HIGHMOTOR to get a free shot at over $30,000 in prizes with your first deposit. Minimum $5 deposit required, eligibility restrictions apply, see DraftKings.com for details. Okay, Chase A. Kitty, Richmond VA, and before we chat hoops here in a minute, I want to get your take on something that bothers me probably regularly, borderline weekly. It bubbled a little bit again last week when I was watching Richard Jewell, the Atlanta bombing movie. I don't know if you've seen it. Everybody's seen it, I think, right? Everybody's seen that movie by now, right? I think a lot of people have, yeah. They know what it is if they haven't seen it. Correct. So I finally got around to watching it. And this kind of falls in the the bucket of the true story thing. You know, it's the, we're pitching this movie as a true story, but we're going to make shit up in this movie, to make our movie better. And the most, this movie isn't even that bad of it, but but the most egregious piece is them saying that Olivia Wilde's character slept with John Hamm's character to get information that was widely criticized last year, and Clint Eastwood, who's just pounding out garbage movies these days, so it's not that surprising that he brushed it off. But anyways, when a movie bills itself as a true story, based on a true story, inspired by true events, however you want to say that, how much do you hold them to that? I mean, what is your what is your expectation for the the social contract in a case like that? How much leeway do you give them to just make shit up and fill in the gaps?
2: OK, so for people that don't know, like Andrew asked me before I came on this podcast, he was like, we're going to talk about a movie. He told me what the movie was. I had no idea what the question was. This like I could write a doctorate thesis about this conversation. So This bothers but- you, too. It's not that it bothers me. Actually, I'm probably going to have a pretty different take on it than you. Uh, I just love this topic because as a writer and as a creative nonfiction writer, you constantly have to keep in mind how you're presenting things because your your truths and how you've seen things may not jive with how somebody else has seen things. So you, you have to really consider when you write creative nonfiction how you're framing something. What I was taught in school, and I think this – might shock people, especially people who are coming at it from a a pure journalistic slant, is that when you're writing something like this movie or something that is sort of based on a true story or pulled from true life events, what I was taught was if it could have happened that way, it's okay to say it like
0: that. So you're okay with, in this, and we can talk about other movies here also, but in this example, the one that got the most attention, as it should have, is that Olivia Wilde's character, Kathy Scruggs, who was a journalist with the Atlanta Journal Constitution uh, back in, t- uh, in 1996, and, and she died five years later, so she wasn't even around to defend herself. 18 years later, when this movie comes out, you're okay with Clint Eastwood being like, "Well, we don't really know if she didn't sleep with John Ham, um, John Ham's FBI character." So you're you're fine just saying that it happened because, sure, I guess it could have happened.
2: I, I'm not, I'm not really okay with. In this particular instance, and I'll tell you why. Because if you if you watch this movie, and I've seen this movie several times because my best friend's little brother is actually in the movie. Uh, I, I've seen it several times, and, and it's pretty clear to me. I, I don't think it's a secret what Clint Eastwood's sort of agenda is when he was making this movie. What, what the point is that he's trying to make. And when you add in the detail that Olivia Wilde's character sleeps with the investigator... I, it's pretty clear to me you're trying to slant opinion against this character who is a journalist and the movie is kind of already exists to – as a an artistic check on the power of journalism and, and the importance of sort of like responsible journalism and all that stuff. It's really not that complicated. You don't have to look that far into the movie to figure that out. And if
0: it wasn't in there, it's not changing the narrative, the entire story. That That's my right. problem with it. You can if-
2: still make that point without that – particular plot point
0: yeah I think you make you make a good point here is that there are different circumstances in which this happens like I remember last year uh right before the Oscars I, I had Pete Blackburn on the show big movie guy and we were talking about uh Black Klansmen and Bohemian Rhapsody um specifically and that these build themselves as true stories yet they they fabricate so many pieces of it in in Black Klansmen specifically most of that story is Complete fabrication, and in my and, and that maybe is a different conversation. Where if you don't, if you need to make up that many big details, you just don't have a commercially viable story. So in this case of Richard Jewell, the story is there unquestionably. The story is there. It's it's a sad, fascinating story, but you feel like even though I mean, this is a small. It I don't want to you know. Say you know what it small, is,
2: Andrew. You know what it is in an action movie where you have a villain that you've sort of fleshed out and he's a gray character and it's well done and, like, you kind of see his point. Thanos is maybe, like, an overdone example but, like, a good villain where you see his point but you still know he's the bad guy and then, like, Early in the third act, he, like, kills a kid or something. So now the audience can can feel good about, like, oh, you know, I hate that guy now. Like, I, I was kind of on the fence, but now I can root against that guy and feel good about it. I feel like that's what this is. That This is the drama version of that.
0: So he's – so Clint Eastwood is so mu- – because there's not – um, Eric Rudolph was the bomber, but we don't know that the entire movie. The only time that we, if you didn't know the story of the Atlanta bombing, which is very possible, like if you're 15 or 16, you are know, watching this movie, you don't know that story. You don't know that it wasn't, that it was Eric Rudolph. And we don't even know in the movie until like um, the final few minutes. I think Sam Rockwell's character goes in and finds him in the police station and tells him that it was Eric Rudolph and they captured him. But anyways, throughout the entire movie, even though we know that a bomber did it and it wasn't Richard Jewell, there's no sort of, enemy here like there's no real uh, antagonist I guess you could say and then you bring in this Kathy Scruggs character who is a real character and you just completely fabricate it so it's Clint Eastwood needing a villain that bad that he's willing to make this kind of shit up I think like, are it's, you kidding
2: I think it's the writer and the people who are putting the movie together uh making a conscious choice to inject extra conflict or, or extra friction So that the audience has a more clear idea of who antagonists are. Because I think you're predisposed. uh, I think most average normal people uh, are going to go into the movie thinking that in general journalism is a force of good. And so you needed something to maybe push the audience out of that sort of normal line of thinking. and, And maybe shock your sensibilities.
0: And I guess my point is if you need that then... If you are so desperate to have that, then you should not be making a movie. And I get that this story needs to be told, but maybe it's this is not the right form. Maybe it's a documentary instead. I'm sure there have been books written about it. Maybe it's that instead, instead of Clint Eastwood making this up. And again, I'm not surprised. I just think, like I like American. You just
2: script it without that detail, right? Why? Why do you need same same that? And if that. it's
0: not as salacious, or however you want to put it, then who cares? Why does? Why does that matter? I I, I just don't get it. I. I also just don't like Clint Eastwood. If, if I see that a movie is coming out and I'm interested in it, and then 30 seconds later I learn that Clint Eastwood directed it or was, produced it or whatever, I am way less likely to see it. I, I just don't see what he's done in a long, long time. American Sniper was fine, but like The Mule was a horrible, horrible movie, and this honestly was not a great movie, and because of what happened with Kathy Scruggs' character, it, it just infuriates me to not to not even like Clint Eastwood even more you don't seem to have a strong opinion on him as I do.
2: Uh, I think that I want to choose my words carefully here. He makes bad movies. It's not, I don't think he makes bad. movies. I agree with you that the mule was not good. The
0: mule was atrocious. Uh, It was not good.
2: Uh, I understand why creatively he wanted to make that movie because of where he is in his life. And I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's easy. I think to draw parallels between he Clint Eastwood and then the, the sort of character in the movie, uh, I think somebody who makes movies from sort of a different perspective than maybe the average Hollywood perspective, I think that's valuable, even if I have qualms with certain bits of execution in each project.
0: That discussion would a been longer than I thought it would. Yeah. So when we were throwing on topics here, we're just going to do a brief segment you mentioned the hot hand thing going into the NCAA tournament. And, and I want you to explain this so that people don't get confused as the hot hand when you're 4-4 four four from behind the arc and you start shooting. What do you mean by the hot hand going into the NCAA tournament?
2: Right. So I think a lot of people, especially over the last five, six, seven years, when they go to fill out their bracket, they go, man, you know who's looked really good? You know who's really hot right now? like Utah state looks really good right now. I think I might take them to win like 3 or 4 games cuz they cuz they're so hot right now. And historically there is very little data to actually back up the idea that a team that's hot in March that carries over into the NCAA tournament. It obviously you can find specific examples but as a general trend, if you're following that, that's a good way to mess your bracket up early.
0: And it's not even so much as, if somebody says that to me, if they're finning out their bracket a, a week from today, we're talking here on Sunday, and Utah State is, I haven't looked at you know bracket projections here after that win over San Diego State, but before that, they were projected if they got in the field as in that large, as like a fringe 12. So maybe they're like a 10, 9 at the very best, 10, 11 in that range. So if somebody says, I'm going to pick Utah State to, to beat the 7 in the first round because they're hot, I'm not even really going to argue against it. If you want to do that, that's fine. It's not even a, a bad argument. It's better than rolling into the NCAA tournament having lost nine games in a row. But, yeah, to your point is that it it seems like, and I went back and looked, and a few numbers here, actually one, one number really, is that seven, and this is kind of a separate conversation because you're saying Utah State, I'm going to pick them to win two, three, four games. Maybe. If you want to take it a step further Seven of the last nine national champions didn't win their conference tournament. I don't know why. And even though it's nine in almost a decade, that's still a pretty small sample size. I don't know why that happened. And the one that, that I looked at a lot was back four years ago, Michigan State 2016. They won 10 of their last 11 regular season games. Remember, they won the Big Ten uh, tourney title. And then Middle Tennessee bounces them in the first round. And again, I don't want to get into the numbers too much because even though we've had the expanded tournament now for 35 years, it's still a really small sample size because there are so many variables in college basketball.
2: Yeah, and, and I think I think this is a popular theory, A, because it does work in the NFL, right? Especially at the, like a decade ago, we had a lot of teams that went and won the Super Bowl just because they got hot. We had the Giants a couple of times in Aaron Rodgers-Packers year, I mean, they won, they, they like got into the playoffs at the very last moment in the regular season, and then they won the Super Bowl, I think, as a sixth seed in the wild card. Like, it happens kind of a lot in the NFL. And then there there were a couple years there in college basketball where I don't know that it was, like, hot-hand team, full-blown thing, but, like, every team that won the Big East tournament for, like, five years went to the Final Four, so there was that. I think some people saw the VCU thing and sort of conflated it with that, even though I don't even remember if VCU won the CAA tournament that year. I'm not even sure they did. Uh, it, it might have been Mason. No, they
0: didn't because they were playing in that in that play-in game. They were the 11th seed. I think they played, yeah. was it yeah. they play Florida State in the play-in game or Florida State in the first round? But no, they wouldn't have won because they were right, playing in they that were in first... the first
2: four in Dayton, right. That that was the year that the CAA just got three teams in. It was like the entire height of mid-major basketball. Like, wow, the CAA got three teams in.
0: And going back to your big East comment, I don't even know so much like is it a like how much do you have to see for yourself to say this is like this is a trend? And this is kind of falls into what we talked about a few times in the last few weeks here. There just aren't that many trends. In the NCAA tournament, yeah, we can see the record of a 2C versus a 15 and and a 6 versus a 3 in the second round. We can see that these higher-seeded teams or whatever-seeded teams historically have fared better, but again, as we've said, it's 68 teams in a single-elimination tournament after an unbalanced, a schedule that's unbalanced in the regular season with 30 plus games. Very, very few common denominators across teams and conferences and players and coaches. I mean, there, this isn't professional sports. And that's, we've talked about this too with college football and the NFL is that everyone wants to kind of put these sports into the same bucket, but they're just different sports. We don't have salary caps. We have we have roster limits and scholarship limits and transparency and things like that for public schools. but. This, these just aren't the same sports. And when we have something like college basketball, I, I just don't know if there are trends and going back. I see what you're saying. Again, if somebody wants to argue, well, I like Utah State this year. Back in 2016, when people were picking Michigan State to win it all after rolling through the last two months of the season, there's no like real argument of saying, no, I don't like that. I don't like that Michigan State is playing well. It's more of a... You never know. Yeah, I like that Michigan State's playing well. Yeah, I like that Utah State beat San Diego State. Now they're in the tournament. If they lost to them, they might not be in the tournament. But it's still not really that much of a reason for me to say I'm going all in on Michigan State in 2016. Or like you said, I'm going all in on Utah State. There's just not enough historical data. and even Even if that data is there, I still don't know how much I'm relying on that because of all the variables in college basketball.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a couple, I think, really memorable examples, like Kemba Walker in 2011 comes yes, to mind. Of yes. Like just machine gunning through everybody, Big East Tournament, NCAA Tournament, and everybody sees that and goes, oh, it's the hot hand. And then like that influences your brackets for 10 years after that. And that's the exception, not the rule.
0: And it's everybody so like, saying, oh, you know, I could see some Kemba Walker in him right now. Uh, they they kind of remind me of you. What was that? Twenty eleven, I think. Twenty eleven. Yeah. yeah, that's when they played Butler. It, it, it's more of the oh, they got some UConn in them. People just like saying this shit because because it kind of reminds you of it. I mean, how many teams are playing well entering the NCAA tournament? Like several dozen. It's not just like one team is playing well and everybody else is crapping the bed, but everyone just likes saying, "Oh, you know who they remind me of? Twenty eleven UConn." Well, and, and one of the things
2: that I'm, I'm trying to evaluate right now, both from a gambling perspective and sort of a bracketology perspective, is, uh, is UVA. And, you know, we're, we're heading into the ACC tournament over here on the East Coast. It's coming up very soon now. And UVA has won like nine games in a row. They're obviously the defending national champion, although I don't know how much that matters when you look at how much their roster's turned over since last year. They've won nine or ten games in a row, something ridiculous. But you know, my friend Bennett Conlon, who writes for the Daily Progress in Charlottesville, he had a stat on Twitter. He's a great follow, by the way. Fantastic follow, so I'm going to give him a plug uh, here. If he had a stat like UVA has won nine games in a row by like a combined 28 points or something ridiculous like that, but all people are going to talk about is the fact that they're on a long winning streak coming out of the regular season. And they
0: can it's win like, those close games, too. Everybody's going to pump that.
2: Right, and then they're going to lose in like the first or second round, and everybody's going to be like, oh, I can't believe that. I had them in the Final Four, you know, defending national champions, long win streak. I'm like, but, I mean, are you looking at the actual meat of what's going on, or are you looking at top-line basic stats about what their season was? Because I think even Tony Bennett would tell you, like, This team's probably not a Final Four contender or a national championship contender. They've got some nice pieces. They have an incredible coach. They have a history of winning. But, like, this is not on par with some of the UVA teams we've seen in the past. This team
0: isn't anywhere close to the team that lost to
2: UMBC
0: in the first round. Do you want more people to – and when the the tournament and the field is announced and you have everybody on ESPN, I get that they're just doing it because it's their job, but we're going to have so many people over those four days telling you exactly what's going to happen. I wish more people would just say, you know what, I don't have a goddamn clue what's going to happen, and we should (laughs) never – can we just eliminate the shock factor? Like when when 11 pounds is six, is that really that shocking? Can we just say – Yeah, sure, if a 16 over a 1 happens again or a 15 over a 2, but it seems like everybody talks about how unpredictable March Madness is, and then yet when something unpredictable happens, we all throw our hands in the air and say, what the hell is happening?
2: Yeah, it is kind of shocking. I think people forget to do some of the math on it. Like when an 11 beats a 6, what is that really? That's a top 45 team beating a top 25 team.
0: On a neutral site.
2: (laughs) On a neutral site. That's
0: not, like, mind-blowing. No, I mean, it's like like Texas going to... And this actually might even be more egregious. Like, Texas going to Lubbock last weekend and winning. It's like, yes, that was shocking, but we're not all just completely stunned that it happened. I mean, it was surprising. But, again, yeah, if a 40... (laughs) That's a great example. Yeah, I mean... It's basic math. Right. If that had happened three weeks earlier in a neutral site wherever or in November, nobody's even talking about that. Like The 45th ranked team, like in in Ken Palm or Sagarin or whoever, beating the 24th ranked team, nobody nobody cares. It's just like, oh, that's a good win. That's not a terrible loss. But the NCAA tournament, we're like, oh, oh, shit. An 11 beat a 6 by 12 points. All right. The next episode of this show, that'll be coming this week on Wednesday morning. I'll publish that. I've had some good feedback from these teleconferences, and ESPN gave me permission to share that Mel Kuyper one in its entirety a few weeks back on the draft, and they gave me permission again to share the Todd McShay draft one this week. So that's coming on Wednesday. Should be loaded with some good draft nuggets. Andrew Doughty, Chase Kitty, this is the High Motor Podcast. I
1: saw a friend today, it had been a while. And we forgot each other's names, but it didn't matter, cause deep inside the feeling still remained the same. We talked of knowing one before you've met, and how you feel more than you see, and other worlds that lie in spaces.